Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to GCSE English Revision Pod, the language pod. That's right. We are moving on, yes. moving up. And uh, the truth is, people often forget that English GCSE is actually two GCSEs. Mm. It's like, you know, German and history. And so often when, and often some of our students at least, they revise literature, but they forget language. Yeah, it's a common problem, isn't it? And it's a trend which is seen where people do a lot better. Well, nationally, there mm. is significant, students do significantly better on literature than language. So we're going to do an episode on each question from each paper. We're going to start with language paper one. Yep. Um, there is a handout, as always, which you can download from the bio. Uh, it has a link to our, um, to our Gmail, our Google Docs. Mm-hmm. And um, on that handout, you'll find top tips for analysing language. You find the main language features that you can analyse for question two. You look at how to structure a response along with all of the examples we talk about today, the questions, they're printed in that handout. It's all there. Everything you need is there as it always is on Mr Forster's fantastic handouts. There's also a link to a second document which is a revision guide we've put together for the whole of language paper one so if you want a little bit more detail it's about 60 pages so it's not one to dip into no um, uh, it's there's a that solid one as document well. i mean you say we've put that together i think that's incredibly I mean, generous of I, you to i may say have that, called it I? mr forster's revision yeah. pack in, in a moment of hubris very modest of you um cool so yeah just to be clear we're not doing a whole paper an episode we're going to focus on a particular question per episode and this so is because this... unlike nearly all your gccs language is skills based so yep. we're focusing on the skill for that question and we're going to really practice it and run you through a couple of examples right yeah of course. okay so language paper one question two this is a question of language analysis yeah. right I mean, let's start with the big picture mm-hmm. language paper one is one hour 45 minutes there's five questions for aqa um i should note here this is relevant to other examples but it's more tailored to aqa because yeah. that is the example that we study but the skills we're going to look the at would be, look would be at. very transferable so if you're doing aqa um you've got about 12 to 15 minutes on this question because it's worth eight marks so you don't want to be writing a huge amount you could get full marks with one paragraph but you may want to write two depending on how much you can write in in 12 to 15 minutes and be careful because that 12 to 15 minutes is excluding just, reading time yeah, you know including, so, yeah. yeah including reading time so so i think the th- the most important advice before we get on to some examples is you've got to read the read the full question and answer the full question yeah rtfq and atfq read the full question answer the full question and the key skill on this is commenting on the effects of language so you don't get any marks for feature spotting polysyndetic sentences what you want to look at is why is the writer used the words that they used what connotations what meaning do those words have and how do they create meaning and what meaning do they create yeah essentially how did the writer do what they've done There, there will be a feeling there will be 
a mood or some kind of vibe around what is being described. Don't use the word vibe. Don't use the word vibe, but do talk about how the writer created yeah. that vibe. And so, in the kitten pack, which is what I, sorry, the puppy pack, um, uh, which is what I call my, my pack, um, it's got a picture of a puppy on. On page three, there's a full list of terminology um, that we can use. Um, but on the handout that I've got for today, there's a much shorter list. So before we get to that, things that I don't want you to do. Do not write about sentence structure, really, unless you're very confident. It's so hard mm. to write about well, unless you know that you're a grade 9 student and you've got things to say about it. I wouldn't. I personally would just say don't write about it. Yeah, it's very hard to make that work, isn't much it? Much easier to get high levels to talk about metaphors, similes, symbolism. Um, I'd also say don't write more than those two pages given. Like Some people will write on and on and on, they'll miss out a question at the end. Yeah. Don't write about techniques without looking at the effect. That's, that's silly. In fact, it would be better not to say what the yeah. technique you was. You could get talk. full marks saying the writer uses this word, the connotations of this word are. Yeah. You do not get marks of fancy sim- um, terminology. And lastly, never ever use those evil phrases. It has a good effect, a big effect, or it makes the reader want to read on. I love it when things make the reader oh, want to read on. It makes me want to vomit. That's what I say when I go into a bookshop. I say, well, have you got anything that would make me want to read on? <laughs> and they say... Get out. Get out. You're not welcome so, here. So, um, main things we're going to look at today, mm. the connotations of words. That means what do we associate with a particular word? Symbolism or figurative imagery. So, metaphors, similes, personification, and then maybe specific things like zoomorphic metaphors or um, that we might, might have a little look at. So, before we look at an example, overall, I like to structure a response like this. I hate things like PE. I think they're quite simplistic. Right. So, just going to jump in quickly and say, if it sounds like we're flying through, we kind of are, but Mr. Forster is religiously following the yep. handout. So if you haven't yet, go and download the handout as you will find it much easier to yep. follow what we're saying. And the real meat and potatoes of this episode is when we start talking about examples, which we're going to well, do in, exactly. a, in about two minutes. Yeah. So how to structure a response. Start with a single sentence, just like you would on a literature exam, summing up what the writer is saying about the, 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 the question. So if the question is on how the writer creates tension, give me an overview statement of how they create st- tension. Yeah. Then get in some quotations, embed them in full sentences, contextualise them, make it clear who's saying it, when, how does it appear. You might even want more than one quotation at this point. You might. Um, but you might just want one if it's a really meaty one. Write a lot about a little relevant in this part of the exam. Very, very much so. So the third part of my paragraph is I'll give like the, the basic analysis of what the overall effect is, but then I want to develop that analysis and go into more detail. I might link in a second quotation that's doing the same thing if it's an extended metaphor. I might give a different interpretation of it. We'll give you an example of what this means in a minute. It's a bit of a case of not running before you can walk, I suppose. Yeah. It's good to start off with a kind of... What's this quotation showing? Yeah. What's this simile, this metaphor, this thing doing? What and does then... it do and then yeah. how does it do it? And then finish by evaluating what is the writer doing? Why is the writer doing this? What are they establishing? What are they trying to get across? Okay. So that's all very complicated. Don't worry about it. Look at the sheet. But let's talk about some examples. So this first example, it's from... Um, it's, it's, it's on your sheet. It's called Question 2, Example A. Mm-hmm. There's an extract from The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. You might have seen the film or even read the book. I, let's not assume our readers are illiterate. No, no, certainly um, not. Sorry, listeners are illiterate. Sounds um, like you are the, uh, the indeed. Uh, illiterate one. Um, the protagonist in this story spends the night alone in an isolated house and the novel itself is a ghost story. Right, so a little bit of contextual information about what the extract is and where it would be found. Yeah, and you'll find that information at the top of the paper when you're reading your language Yeah, and actually it is quite important to read, isn't it, because it will yeah. potentially... Give you um, give you more understanding than you would have had otherwise. So don't just gloss over that. Actually, make sure you are getting the full summary of what the thing is. Indeed, the question for today is: How does Susan Hill use language to create a tense scene? 
for the reader. Right, so we know there's going to be tension there. Clearly the writer has created tension, or it wouldn't be in the question. How did the writer create this So tension? we're looking for words with connotations of, of kind of fear. We're looking at metaphors, similes, imagery that creates uh, a sense of fear, a sense of foreboding, or a sense of, mm. of uh, something that's ominous. These are some useful words we might want. So let's, let's, up. let's mm. read the extract. During the night, the wind rose. As I had lain reading, I became aware of the stronger gusts that blew every so often against the casements. But when I awoke abruptly in the early hours, it had increased greatly in force. The house felt like a ship at sea, battered by the gale that came roaring across the open marsh. Windows were rattling everywhere, and there was the sound of moaning down the chimneys of the house and whistling through every nook and cranny. Oh, it's mighty tense. So, um... What, language, what, what lines are jumping out straight away for you? Um, and what might we say about them before we kind of look at how we could structure this? Well, I'm thinking I love that simile of the house feeling like a ship at sea. I, I think, think there's that's a lot we could say with that. Interesting. You've got connotations. Because when we're at sea, you don't feel that same security, do you? When you're in a house, it's solid. It's on land. It's secure. But a ship at sea is rocked. It's and at the mercy of the weather. Particularly as, you know, I mean, to contextualise it, it's describing a night during a storm. Mm. And the idea that the house felt like a ship at sea implies that like a ship at sea could sink, you know, from the yeah. winds or the waves. He feels metaphorically that perhaps this, this house too could sink. It feels like sink. A, a place that isn't safe. It seems yeah. to foreshadow the supernatural threats of the novel itself, mm. doesn't it? It sets up this uneasy atmosphere that he feels like as a vulnerable sailor on a ship, mm. vulnerable to the ocean, uh, that he could sink. Um, and then you've got some lovely verbs in there, haven't you? Yes, definitely. Like, the, the gale came roaring across the, the marsh. Mm-hmm. It battered the house. There was the sound of moaning down the chimneys and whistling for yeah. every nook and cranny. So the weather is almost being personified, would you say, yeah. in this extract? Well, you can either kind of describe it personified almost as, as, a, as a ghost. Yeah. Or the connotations of roaring certainly seem zoomorphic, like it's this threatening animalistic presence, like a monster. Mm. The idea that it's whistling through every nook and cranny is a sense of it chasing him through the house. Right, and then there's an inescapability to it. Every nook and cranny, the, the adverb Every is sorry, the ad- adjective, yeah. <laughs> Every yeah. is quite interesting there because it suggests that there's no way he can get away from this force. So, so, I think what we've kind of given you there is a few examples that we could zoom in on, but it's much better to use fewer examples but really analyze them in lots Pull of detail. Apart. And then, the way I do this question, people say, How many paragraphs do you write, sir? and I say, you write how much you've got time for in 12 to 15 minutes. Right. So you write a paragraph and you think, oh, I've got seven minutes left, I'll do a second one. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason you do that, of course, the way the mark scheme works is the kind of the highest point you reach in your answer is the grade you get. Yeah, so, so it's important to just keep going, isn't it? Don't yeah. cross stuff out, don't think that that doesn't really work, I'm going to scribble it out, just keep going, because the best thing that you write will be what you're judged yeah. on. And this is why, I mean, you could get full marks for the single paragraph, but equally, if you've got time, why not write a second paragraph? It might be better yeah. than your first. Yeah, well, so, exactly. So, let's start by having a little look, then, at um, the, the answer that I kind of picked out here. From the beginning of the extract, Susan Hill creates tension in her depiction of the weather. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my, um, my topic sentence. Yeah. And it gives an overview for the question, doesn't it? We've got the, 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 the weather is what she uses specifically to create tension. Right, so you've developed on the question a little bit because the question didn't give you the weather. You've mentioned yeah. the tension, but you've said it's done through yeah. weather. Avoid using work, vague things like the writer uses language techniques because mm. that makes it seem like you don't understand it. And the truth is you probably don't understand it if you're yeah. saying that. So once we've got that, we need some examples. This is apparent in her personification of how the wind rose and blew roaring across the open marsh, moaning down all the chimneys and whistling through every nook and cranny. Yeah. So we decided to analyse those verbs that Mr Galley picked out. And we've put it in a full sentence. You can see this on your sheet as well. But we've also immediately picked out um, a technique, personification. Yeah. 
Um, so we're showing the examiner we're focusing on language. So a simple explanation of that, there is a suggestion here of the wind as a powerful and frightening force, even as a malign supernatural figure attacking the house. Great, so you've got some good vocabulary in there. You've got the word malign meaning to damage, to be uh, evil, to kind of yeah, evil, evil, intent. evil intent towards this thing. So straight away we're building on that answer. But lots of students would stop there. Right. And if you stop there, you are not going to access the top levels. No. Because to access the top level, it's perceptive and detailed are the key words, level four. You which need to gets be you zooming to right in. So let's zoom in on some words. So... A word that I like that can signal you're doing that is specifically. Like, pick a word. And like, specifically, the verb roaring mm-hmm. carries the zoomorphic idea of the storm as a monster getting ready to consume the protagonist. And in the idea of it whistling through every nook and cranny, Hill seems to suggest that it's somehow pursuing the narrator, chasing him through the house. Mm. So what you need to do when, um, when you're analysing words is explain why did the writer use that particular word? What is that word associated with? What does it make you think of? And then you apply that back to the question, yeah. to his situation. Um... Let's finish the paragraph then by coming back to what the writer's trying to say. What's the effect? Again, don't say this is effective or it makes us read on. Be clear. So this establishes a palpable, that means clear, tension at this moment in the novel because the depiction of the weather is, of course, ultimately indicative of the narrator's sense of mind, of his sense of isolation and disquiet, staying alone in the house during the storm. It could also add to the idea of the house itself as being somehow haunted, threatened not just by the wind, but by harmful supernatural forces also. Good, so you've kind of fused this idea of the weather, you've put it together with the supernatural and said, well, ostensibly, obviously, he seems scared of the storm itself, but then that makes us think, is this actually a supernatural element that's pursuing him? And the reason we know that is because we read the context at the top, we know it's a ghost story. So we can make the... Even if we've not seen the film, we don't know anything about the book, we can guess that this this the, the weather seems here to... Pre- prepare us yeah. for some kind of sim- supernatural appearance that's so all you need to if do if you just wrote that one paragraph you would get 8 out of 8 on yeah. this question that's quite arrogant of you to award yourself <laughs> 8 out of 8 for oh, that, I yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it would I, I, I it got wouldn't <laughs> um, and the key things that we've done there again is we've identified um, specific words or phrases We've looked at how at a technical level has the writer done this. Mm-hmm. But we've also explained in more detail what the effect of this is. Why did they compare them to these particular things? Mm-hmm. Should we look at a second example? All right, brilliant. Let's crack on. So this is um, example B. It's from a brilliant novel called The Yellow Birds by Kevin Powers. He's a genius of a writer. Um, he was an Iraq war veteran and he wrote a novel about a man who comes back from Iraq and suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. Similar to a lot of the poems. That yeah, like Remains in, uh, in Power and Conflict. Podcast, go and listen to them. And um, this extra is the opening to the novel. And the question says, how does the writer use language to describe the war? Okay. Very simple. So we're looking for metaphors, similes, imagery, words that set up something about the war. It's some really hard vocab. But by the way, this is some beautiful writing. So let's let's read it. So he says, this is on your handout. The war tried to kill us in the spring. As grass greened the plains of Nineveh and the weather warmed, we patrolled the low-slung hills beyond the cities and towns. We moved over them and through the tall grass on faith, needing paths into the windswept growth like pioneers. While we slept, the roar, the war rubbed its thousand ribs against the ground in prayer. When we pressed onward through exhaustion, its eyes were open and white in the dark. While we ate, the war fasted, fed by its own deprivation. It made love and gave birth and spread through fire. It's wonderful writing. Yeah, I mean, I can't read today, so I'm totally illiterate. That's all right. Um... What stuff's jumping out at you straight away? What language do you use to describe war? What might we look at? What quotations? Well, first of all, the, the most interesting thing, I suppose, or one of the very interesting things is even in that first line, it's the war who tried to kill them. It's not the enemy. Yeah, it's war's personified, isn't war it? War is its own entity. It's a living, breathing again, like, thing. Like the storm in the last example, the war's personified as almost a monster. Yeah. 
So the brilliant bit, that's it's extended personification. If you say extended, it just means it goes on for a while. Yeah. So it, and it, it rubbed its thousand ribs against the ground in prayer. Mm-hmm. Do you have a thousand ribs, Mr. Kelly? I don't. I don't either. No. Um, this suggests this war is something massive, something yeah. huge, a monstrous creature. Yeah. Um, its eyes are white and open in the dark. Are your eyes white? And certainly not all the way through. No, that's a horrible <laughs> it's quite, way. It's quite image. a creepy, a sinister image, isn't it? It yeah. seems like a monster out of a horror film. Yeah. Um, and the idea of it spreading through fire, giving birth through fire, is quite, um, you know, what are the connotations of fire? Yeah, Hell, I mean, yeah. yeah, and its ability to reach out perhaps unchecked by man, but also the juxtaposition of the idea of the warm making love yeah. and giving birth something as destructive as war, and yet having somehow the ability to make love is quite an interesting image, I think. Yeah, well, I think it's quite disturbing, isn't it? It's mm. like the war is like reproducing. Yeah, the fire is that rather than rather than being an act of a, a beautiful act of creation, this is a this is destruction, self-serving act of creation, yeah. uh, self self preservation. So, I think straight away this paragraph is going to be on the personification of the war. Yeah. That's what I'm right. So my topic sentence is, in the opening paragraph, Kevin Powers personifies the war as a disturbing and monstrous figure. Right, nice. Straight away. So we're being specific. So we're not just saying he describes war in many different ways. No, mm. we're saying he's a personification to make it seem monstrous. Yeah, clear. So, here's what he clear. does, here's why he does yeah. it. Then we're going to get some quotations, some examples. He begins by emphasising how the war tried to kill us before extending this personification with the terrifying depiction of its eyes, which were white and open in the dark, as it rubbed its thousand ribs against the ground in prayer, and the frightening idea contained in the alliterative oxymoron that it fasted, fed by its own deprivation. Good. So alliterative, meaning both words start with the same sound, and oxymoron, of course, meaning the two words shouldn't yeah, go together. They, they kind of they contradict each other. Mm. So, again, you don't get the marks for the terminology. And we've not really done much analysis yet, so we've not really picked up many marks yet. We're doing, no. the, we're doing the basic stuff before we get to the, the fireworks. We've set ourselves up. You, you've put the ball onto your better foot. You're looking, yeah. at the, you're looking at the goal. You're getting ready to shoot at the goal, but you can still miss it. Mm. So we now start with our simple analysis. The abstract noun deprivation here, like the monstrous nature of this image conjured up in Powers' metaphors, sets up this image of war as something beyond reason, beyond comprehension like the beast of the apocalypse from Revelation. That's just me showing off, you know. Um, mm. That's just a biblical illusion. So you don't need to worry about that last bit. But the point is here, the, the word deprivation shows that this seems like a monster. Right. Um, but I think more importantly, this association can also be seen in the semantic field of the polysyndetic list. That just means it says and, 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 mm-hmm. and, which ends the first paragraph. From the idea that the war made love and gave birth and spread through fire, it's possible to see its association with hell. Right. So the main analysis is that it seems associated with hell. That it but, seems fiery, that it seems all damnation yeah. and burning. But what I'm going to do here is show you how you can actually go into more detail by giving a different interpretation. Yeah. Just like we've done with our literature podcast, you can say it's something different. So I say, nevertheless, what is important here is not simply its terrifying nature, but the idea that war is personified as being specifically Muslim. It's fasting, it's praying with its chest to the ground. Right. So this takes our analysis a little bit further. This is quite a perceptive idea that war is not just a monster, it's a Muslim monster. So then we can finish by saying, therefore, despite the poetic register, the elaborate language, Mm -hmm. in this opening description, we see more than the narrator's horror of the Iraq war. We can also infer his prejudice against those that he's fighting. Right, so that would be the quite subtle analysis, wouldn't it, that the through this language, the writer is showing not only this monstrous perception of war but also he's judging the war to be the kind of fault of his enemy right yeah. that's the that's the monster he's fighting against and that's where we really nail our level four our top level answer right. we've picked out quotations we've picked out 
techniques of the language. We've looked at the associations of words, but we've given a couple of different interpretations. We've gone into a little bit of detail. Yeah. So it's that de- again, single paragraph that could get you eight out of eight. And indeed, they'd only really need to go into the monstrous aspect of it to potentially hit the top eight. Yeah. If they did that first bit really yeah. well, yeah. you would be you would be there without going into the prejudices of the speaker. Yeah. You could get that just from the monstrous depiction of the of the wall. Listen, the, the the most important thing to remember about this exam is you say a lot about a little. Yeah, you go into lots and lots of detail about a quotation. So there's one more example which you might want to do yourselves, but we'll we'll we won't read you a model answer, but we'll set up some things you might want to analyse. Yeah, and why don't you have a go? Sounds good. So this is an extract from Bright, Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. Um, it's set in 1938 um, in in the popular seaside town of, of of Brighton. Great town. And Hale, who's a journalist, he's playing the part of Collie Kibber. He works the Daily Messenger newspaper, and he gives out cards for prizes to the holiday crowd. But something else is on his mind. So his job is. Um, it's a bit like they sometimes do this on radio shows today if anyone reads the newspaper and understands the clues they find out where he is and if they find him he gives them money they get surprised and he's playing and he's called Collie Kibber yeah. right that's yeah. his uh, that's his newspaper name but his playing. real name is Hale yeah um, and what we're the question we're doing is how does the writer use language to describe Brighton on that day mm. so the question isn't really on Hale I mean Hale's mentioned that's why I mentioned his name but the question is on Brighton so we're looking for what is Brighton like what kind of place does it seem? Mm-hmm. What words, similes, metaphors, imagery can we see? So, so we're going to we're going to leave that to our uh, yeah. listeners. So, so we? we'll read it and then we'll pick out a few quotations and we'll leave you to write your own paragraph. Sounds good. So sounds good. They came in by train from Victoria every five minutes, rocked down Queen's Road, standing on the tops of the little local trams, stepped off in bewildered multitudes onto fresh and glittering air. The new silver paint sparkled on the piers. The cream houses ran away into the west like a pale Victorian watercolour. A race in miniature motors, a band playing, flower gardens in bloom below the front, an aeroplane advertising something for the health in pale vanishing clouds across the sky. It had seemed quite easy to Hale to be lost in Brighton. 50,000 people besides himself were down for the day, and for quite a while he gave himself up to the good day, drinking gins and tonics wherever his programme allowed. Hmm, sounds like a nice day. I mean, I'm straight away thinking the first paragraph's more interesting for language than the second. Yes. The second's just telling us what he's doing. Mm. Whereas, as we said with literature, it's often symbols, similes, metaphors, they're often the easiest place to start. Yeah. Because they force you to go into detail. Mm-hmm. So is there anything that's jumping out at you, Mr. Go, that you'd, lo- you'd like to analyse straight away? About Brighton, how Brighton's described. Well, I think, first of all, the flesh and glittering air. I think the the connotations of the word glittering might be interested, especially when you put said together. flesh, fresh. The fresh and glittering <laughs> air, sorry. Uh, especially flesh and glittering air are disturbing. Especially when combined with uh, the sparkling silver paint. Then, of course, you've got this great long yeah. list of the various things that are to be seen. Yeah, so, I mean, let's start on this. The, the connotation of glittering and sparkled, these are things that imply it's a city, it's a, it's a town filled with light, mm. filled with beauty. And the long list of attractions, again, is very sensual. It focuses on the colours, the silver paint, the cream houses. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, the, the, the band playing, the flower gardens in bloom, it's appealing to the, to the different senses, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, the sense of yeah. sight. Yeah, and also the language that describes the amount of people who are there and the way they're behaving is quite so interesting. It's depicted in a very positive way. Yeah. But I think perhaps the most interesting one to zoom in on in a bit of detail is the idea that the, the houses look like a pale Victorian watercolour. Right. Because... The connotations of a Victorian watercolour painting, it suggests that it almost looks like a work of art. Yeah. It looks like something created by an artist 
something that's beautiful. So this ties in with the idea that, that the day is perhaps so perfect. It seems almost framed by, by its kind of artistic beauty. Mm. Um, and, 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 that, and that certainly seemed to set up Brighton as a positive place. Very Obviously, nice. if you read the whole piece, you'd realise that Hale fears to be murdered. Yeah. So actually you could talk about, therefore, there's this juxtaposition between this beautiful setting and the, the 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 fears that Hale has, and that would be probably quite useful for a question three. Oh, definitely. I mean, that, mm. you definitely touched upon that in question three. So we'll we'll leave you there. Um, if you look in the kitten pack, there's actually some examples from the exam board of two out of eight, four out of eight, six out of eight, and eight out of eight. For nice. This. So it might be worth writing your answer, then and going then... and looking at those and seeing where you think your answer fell. So to sum up, um, question two is actually not as hard as people think. It's the same skills you've been doing for English literature. Mm-hmm. You need to decide forensically which are the best quotations to analyse. I often would jump at similes, metaphors, symbols. Yep. Or words with really interesting connotations. Mm, especially multiple connotations. Yeah. If there's anything... That... I do, that's the dream, isn't yeah. it? Um, then I would start with a thesis that's more specific than the question. So it goes into some, a specific aspect of the question. Pick in a few quotations. You know, if it's one, you could have one amazing quotation, but realistically, you might need a couple to look yeah. at. A couple of quotations. Then give your simple explanation. What's the overall effect? Zoom in on more detail. Which are the interesting words or phrases? What are the connotations they have? How does that link to the character or theme being discussed? And really pull it apart. Yeah. You know, really forensically dissect yeah. those words. And then right at the end, come back to the writer's purpose. Why is the writer doing this? What are they trying to establish? Yeah. What's the effect of it? And like a little that, micro essay, really, yeah, isn't it? It's like a mini essay. This mm. is the, these are the skills you've done on all of your literature texts. Yeah. So that's question two. Um, yeah. So, I think we're. I think we're about That's done. That's all I gotta say about that. <laughs> very good. Quote very, very good here, indeed. Right. So please uh, let us know how you get on with that. Our email address is EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com You can follow us on Twitter at GRevisionPod. And as ever, make sure you have gone to the bio of this podcast. You have downloaded all the materials that we have attached, and we will see you next time when we will have a look at question three. Yeah. Fantastic. Have a brilliant day.